0: Hello, I'm John Kelly and this is a podcast of Mystery Train. For rights reasons, the music is shorter than in the original programme. Mystery Train hits the rails Sunday to Thursday at 7pm on RTE Lyric FM.
1: else is just icing on the cake, you dig? I do. In my native village in Johannesburg, there is a song that we always sing when a young girl gets married it's called the click song by the english because they cannot say
0: And this is Mystery Train on RTE Lyric FM. We're here until uh, nine o'clock. Excuse the distraction here, but I have to say this for the first time in a long time, the guest is actually dancing. <laughs> um, my guest tonight is Lisa Dwan, <laughs> uh, actress, and I'm so delighted you're here, Lisa. Oh, um, it's a privilege to be here. You're a busy, busy woman, and uh, you're, you're in town because you've you have a play opening on Thursday night.
1: That's right. And
0: what is it th- what is this play?
1: Well, um it's called Pale Sister and it's a retelling of the Antigone myth um, written from from the point of view of Ismene her sister and it was written especially for me by Colm Toibín and it's a one woman um play and it's at the Gate oh. Can't mm, go wrong. Can't go wrong. <laughs> One hopes. Favourite's well,
0: we'll, last word. We, we, we'll talk about all that mm-hmm. as, as the night goes on. But anyway, that's that's a great it's a great reason that you're back in town and uh, we can do this. And thanks for sparing the time. So we're here until nine o'clock. Lisa Duane is with me. Um, Lisa is a, an actress very much associated with the work of Samuel Beckett. But also, um, on your screens these days, um, I am I'm I'm, have to check because I will call it Toy Boy. <laughs> 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 it's... it's <laughs> it's it's top top boy, mm-hmm. and this is a on Netflix. Ronan Bennett wrote this, That's didn't right? It? Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: so funny. I was just thinking, I came across Ronan's work twenty something years ago here. Yeah, um, um the Catastrophist, yeah. extraordinary novel. If anyone gets a chance to read it, and. Um, I was crossing campus when uh, I got a phone call out of the blue from Rowan and telling me that he'd written me this role and it was an Irish drug dealer. And the first person he thought of was me, <laughs> I know. but um, would I consider going for it? And um, and so I had to audition for it several times. Netflix didn't know me from Adam and uh, I did and I got the role and uh, I've just shot 10 episodes in London. Um, it's inner city, drugs, gang, crime, family, um, gentrification. Uh, and what, difference, kind of what difference does it
0: make to you as a working actor now to be on something like a Netflix series like that? Because, you know, you do all this Beckett stuff and you're known for that. But the very nature of that, it's in the theatre. You're not in people's faces every night of the week on the television. And then suddenly you are. Does that change things? Well
1: it started off in telly. I mean Mm. the reason why I had to or felt I had to leave Ireland was I was considered just a TV actress. I was Having huge difficulty uh, getting seen or considered as a stage actor. I mean, people love their boxes, and I keep finding myself in new boxes mm. that I have to try and get out of, but the propensity to box me doesn't change. Well, <laughs> just, I guess I thought, um, I thought maybe. So,
0: I thought you had uh, climbed into your preferred box at this point and doing the Beckett thing. And no, I just like that. to
1: keep people on their toes. Mm. Uh, like, the, only. What was it six months ago? Someone said, "Oh, you do other theatre? Oh, we thought that you were just a performance artist. Yeah. Um, and then I'm I'm doing this, and none of my cast members know who Beckett is, and that's kind of nice. Or, that's not to say that they don't know who he is, but he's yeah. not on their day to day register. Well maybe said. in the way that before we play your
0: next your, your next choice of music, yeah. um, you, started mm-hmm. out, you started out you started as a ballet and ballet that was really your thing, wasn't it? Early yeah. on, yeah.
1: I mean, the reason why I chose the Mary McEva. Um, is that you know? I think we have a, a certainly. I have fallen into this trap occasionally. Um, maybe it's an Irish thing that we, we. Um yeah. Harbor or remember our, our our kind of negative aspects of our childhood, like a competitive sport. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up in a in a time of McGarran and <laughs> and Angela's Ashes. I remember Dad throwing down that book, saying, "Jesus, it's where no one ever suffered." Yeah. Um, and uh, and I forget that there were moments that were extraordinarily happy, yeah. and that. Um, despite our and my propensity for black dog, that there's an extraordinary propensity for joy. And um, and this was an athlone. An athlone. And and we all would get up and dance to Miriam Makeba. Mm. And both my brother and my sister went to United World College. And so um, the house was always filled with... Versions of No and um, all the music that was brought back from their sort of international um, uh, experiences. And um, David was in Vancouver Island and Renata, my sister, was in Montezuma and they would just bring back all of this kind of. Mm. Excitement and culture back to our house. And our house was always kind of filled with music. And, and who,
0: who was, uh, were you sent to ballet or did you volunteer for that?
1: Well, I, I can't even remember. I, I, you know, there was this extraordinary lady in Athlone called Morris Sloan who set up um, a ballet school in the Jolly Marner. Um, and it was a nightclub um by and by day gave way to shoals of blue leotards um who were feeding a parent's promise of a would be giselle um delivering a sort of deportment of sorts to an athlone home and in my case, my uh, <laughs> um n- you know desire to be on stage. I grew up under this kind of spell of what my father was like when he was on stage. oh, your father was a great comedian, and you must be great on stage and 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 maybe that was, maybe stage was the language of love in our house. I don't know. But uh, I, from as early as I can remember, that's all I wanted to be. I remember someone coming around to our school asking us all, what did we want to be when we grew up? And I couldn't believe that people would muffle their own expectations by choosing pedestrian kind of jobs, which are probably fine. I was like, well, either astronaut or actress, <laughs> <laughs> you know. It seemed utterly plausible and athlone. But this woman, you know... I remember, I must have been about three or four, and she decided to put on Coppelia, um, this ballet. And, uh, I mean, she was extraordinary. She'd watched the videos of the Royal Ballet where the actual choreography of... Uh, of Petipa was used and she would take it down and annotate it and use that exact choreography among our dancers wow. and try and teach us the, um, these moves. You very lucky, and,
0: weren't you? You know, me? You were very lucky. I was so lucky that that these was, women would just... But that there was led, someone like that. You know, you know? that we
1: would uh, attempt to glissade through these chewing gummed, beer-stained... Um, floors holding poise through the heady mix of fags and porter wafting in from next door. Um, but dancing the actual choreography from the Royal Ballet. And and it uh, just I felt that these women were extraordinary. And Mrs. Sloane, I'll never forget, taking... Um, Capelia onto the Dean Crow stage in Athlone and every parent was sewing costumes and there was a whole kind of infrastructure built around this vision of hers. Yeah. And my sister was playing France and I remember her daughter was playing Swan Hilda, and I would sit at the side of the stage at night and be swept up by this extraordinary narrative. And in a way Capelia's narrative this... Um, this creation of a, of a of an inventor, of a doll maker, has helped me understand Beckett. Ballet was my first reference point and gave me the sort of psychological freedom to unlock some of the more tricky aspects of Beckett uh, in the sense that my imagination could roam from playing rats to dolls to puppets to... The Willys group, a room, uh, you know, a group of supernatural women who would glide across these waters and dance angry men to death. <laughs> God. Um, uh, but I was when I was 12 years of age. And well,
0: here, this, this, this is the bit that seems, you know, it's OK. This is brilliant. You're in Athlone and this is a wonderful woman, this teacher. Exactly. It's great. It's great. It's great. But then you're dancing. You're, <laughs> da- you're dancing with Nureyev by the well, time you're 12.
1: It's hilarious. Yeah. How did that happen? Well... You know, it was a publicity stunt. The Cleveland San Jose Ballet Company were working with Rudolf Nureyev in Coppelia. He was playing Dr. Coppelius. So he wasn't doing massive six foot leaps for freedom in the air. He was playing a a character role. And um, it was two years before he died. So I would imagine he would have been quite sick. And they came to Dublin. And they auditioned for a dancer to dance with him. So members of our uh, enthusiastic (laughs) uh, ballet group in Athlone were thrown into the car. I was promised a McDonald's, and that's why I was going. I don't know about anyone else. I didn't even know who Nureyev was. And... um, I got chosen for the role and my mom said, well, she can't do it because I have to take them back to Athlone and rehearsal starts tomorrow and some kindly woman said, we'll take her. And so mom took everyone back to Athlone in the car and I stayed with strangers that night and met Nuri of the next day (laughs) and so I danced for a week on stage with him in the wings and we'd sit at the side and I would would look at this man entering the theater every night with the green beret and this long green leather trench coat and this gorgeous scar over his lip I thought he was the sexiest most charismatic um man I'd ever come across and um and I would watch him shouting at the American dancers for throwing their hips out of alignment and not keeping the integrity of form in favour of spectacle. And I'll never forget, um, it almost seemed to hurt him when they would... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, when they would uh, kind of throw their bodies around with such kind of vigour, with that that kind of integrity. And I'll never forget it. Um, and it was... You know, this ballet was so much part of my life and You've my You've chosen some music from Coppelia, mm-hmm. I see.
0: So uh, I'm not sure what exactly we're going to play, but here it comes. They're from uh, Coppelia and uh, the choice of Lisa Duane, who danced Coppelia not only as a, a child in Athlone, but then later as a 12-year-old with Nurev. <laughs> it's a mad story, isn't it? Yeah,
1: I guess
0: it is. Uh, no, it is. There's no guessing, <laughs> there's no, there's no guessing about it. And But and even, even, all roads seem to lead back to Beckett for you, because while that was playing, you were thinking about Beckett.
1: Yeah, I mean, this ballet... And particularly that, that moment in the ballet where your heart opens up to this inventor who's in love with his invention. And it, like so many of the ballets are like that Petrushka, mm. um, this puppet, um, who in the final act was seen as a sort of high point in ballet. Where he rails against his maker and his life, and then you don't know well who is real and who isn't—is the creator or is it the puppet has more mm. life here? And um, Beckett went to see Petrushka, many the one-act plays of the Ballet Russe, and it had a profound effect on him. That made its way into the novel he was writing at the time. Buttoned up and left to dance, he was like Petrushka in his box. Um and I've always felt that ballet really found me the keys to open up Beckett's work. Um, particularly his later roles and his later female roles when Footfalls, whether you wonder is she there or not there, is mother the the voice real agency who's tormenting May on stage, or is May, you know, a figure of mother's imagination. And um And I've always enjoyed the metaphysical aspect of Beckett to be able to transcend my own body and particularly the politics around my own body. And most of his creatures, they're, they're, they're creatures, they're not characters. They're slices of life, they're slices of the whole. And in order for me to inhabit that wholly and fully, um, you have to let your imagination take you there. And I think my imagination was nourished from a very young age as a dancer.
0: See, I'd love to know how you get to this point from being a kid in Athlone, right? Nothing wrong with Athlone, a kid anywhere in Ireland, you know. And you... You mentioned a couple of things earlier on that suggest to me that maybe the house was a bit, the family life was a bit sort of rarefied. You said your dad was a comedian, but was he a comedian, an actual comedian or just a funny guy? And you also mentioned, you know, ponies, which suggests that you're aristocracy, which you're not. I mean,
1: you really need to have a look at these ponies. And that your your
0: siblings were travelling to uh, to far-flung places, you know, and coming back with... Strange music. Well,
1: the truth is there wasn't a lot of money. Um, my father was made redundant when I was about eight. and What did, was what did put he do, back. by the way? Uh, he took a job up with Heineken and distributed that um, initially with just a trailer and two kegs that built up to a whole distribution center. But he did it himself and he'd come home from that and tear off the shirt and then do the garden or fix the lawn more and he was great with his hands and he was a real can-do guy. And um I, I remember looking out the back window at his bare chest as he was trying to level the garden and just the effort and the strain. And I'll never forget that. And um I'm I've inherited that work ethic and I admire it in other people. In terms of our notions of ourselves. Yes, they did. And I think it was a very deliberate move, you know, and I think it was a move of many Irish families, actually. Um, You know, Ireland came out of a civil war and the last thing we wanted was our vision to be narrowed back into nationalism you know and I think my parents were very adamant that they wanted to expand our our vision of ourselves and what we could possibly be by opening up the world to us. Or our house was called Shalom and I don't know why we had Yentel on all the time but there was Spanish dancers and there was talk of our Italian were, blood. I, I and don't and want to wait <laughs> on your there,
0: there, there were there are a lot of bungalows called Shalom around the country. There oh, seem really? to be quite a, to be quite a few. <laughs> Shalom must have been the in name. Well, for,
1: probably that's all it was. But houses. I do feel that they worked hard at expanding yeah. our and idea. Would you, and Europe played a very big deal in that. And
0: would you have considered it, looking back, a kind of a, an arty house or a bohemian house? Or, you know, it's what you've talked about so far is kind of like business and fairly conservative kind of approach to life, you know?
1: I wouldn't say neither. I wouldn't say either of my parents are big readers, so mm. I don't know how they managed to spawn four academics. Mm. Um, I don't know how that was um, possible. Um, Renata, my eldest sister, broke the mould, and she got a scholarship to United World College. Then she went to Oxford. She now has very senior position in the UN. My brother's a professor in Oxford. is a professor in Harvard. Uh, and, and you're
0: on the television. And I'm on the telly. You're a disgrace to yeah. the family, really. <laughs> black, the black I'm, sheep. I'm a drug dealer <laughs> on <black> television. <laughs> <laughs> the black sheep. And, and uh, you know, what about what about acting then? Do you remember when, when's the first time you, you acted? Not I'm not talking about ballet, but... Um.
1: Oh, I'll tell you exactly when it was. I was uh, in high infants, I think I must have been. Is that when you're seven, just before you make your Holy Communion? or Maybe a little bit before that. And um, Mrs. O'Connor, another teacher, sent for me. You know the with the the, the mooncher would send for uh, get a child to come in and, and send for uh, Miss Dwan. So I was brought into a gym where she was instructing some kids on stage, and she um, said, "Now, Lisa Nattercher, could you walk across the stage like you're a duck?" I said, um, "What? And she, you're Liam Dwan's daughter, aren't you?" And I went. Uh, yeah, I am. Could you please just walk and show these students how to walk like a duck? And so I didn't know what I was being asked to do, but she was kind of terrifying. So I I did my best effort to walk across the stage like a duck. And she went, Thank you. Yes, it wasn't from the ground, she licked it. Off you go. <laughs> wow. So. Wow. Um, I, I wish
0: this was television now because I would ask you to demonstrate. <laughs> To demonstrate the duck walk, <laughs> your next musical choice is the Pixies. Why the Pixies?
1: I was a bit bullied in school, maybe because of my duck walking, or maybe because I was a bit odd, and uh, maybe because I danced with Nuri. Ever, uh, who knows? Uh, I, yeah, I guess. Well, I'm it did mark odd. you
0: out from the crowd, I, I guess. Kind of yeah. did,
1: I guess, but um, or maybe I'm just annoying. Um, but either way, um, it was a bit tough, and I was moving to another school. And I was heading out the door um, like a good first year with my skirt basically down to my heels and uh, some kind of cheesy curing dangling from it and my shirt buttoned up and um, looking all prim. And my brother said, where are you going? And I'm going to school. And he said, do you want another fucking year like you've had? And he said, come here to me. And he grabbed my school bag and ripped it up and wrote, I am a nihilist and wrote the Pixies um, and got Tipex. And he was like, now you listen to the Pixies and this is Sonic Youth and this is therapy. And then he put on a leather cap on me and don't just put one earring in. And he was like, right, you're off. Roll up that fecking skirt. (laughs) And for like a whole, I'd say six months until they really discovered what was underneath. I was kind of cool. And it was thanks to the Pixies. Stop.
0: Where is my mind? Pixie's the choice of Lisa Duane, who's with me in the studio tonight. Uh, Lisa's uh, play, uh, Pale Sister, written by Colin Tobin, opens on um, Thursday night at the Gate Theatre. Lisa's in here tonight picking all the tunes. She should be rehearsing, but she's here picking all the tunes. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's going well. So We've learned so much so far about, <laughs> about <laughs> your duck walking the <laughs> and all the rest of it. Did you, when did you maybe have a notion that acting could possibly be a, a career path? Something you might do. Oh,
1: not until way later. Mm. Um, At this point, people were sitting up, listening to my, or looking at my dance. And I was offered um, a scholarship to a ballet um, school in England at 14. And I took it. Um, For me, it was a, a chance to get out of Ireland and an opportunity to dance every day, whereas in my um, in the Jolly Marner with Morris Sloan, it was maybe most twice a week. And um, I remember it was the Royal um, Ballet exams and this woman, Dorothy Stevens, came over from England and she asked me to stay back after the exam and I thought, um, like I usually was, that I was in trouble. <laughs> and... Um, because uh, I hadn't been practising and I was copying the other girls, um, she asked me if I'd be interested in taking this seriously. And I was offered a scholarship. And um, To where? It's in Halifax, yeah. um, uh, just between Halifax and Leeds, a place you, called Lightcliffe.
0: But even at 14, I, mean, I can imagine 17, 18, you want to get away, but at 14, you wanted to get away? You wanted to leave Ireland at 14? Oh, yeah. 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 And were you getting bullied at school? And it was it because you were oh, on the telly no. and whatnot?
1: No, I think, look, I just, I used to look out that window uh, across the fields and just wonder what was on the other side mm. of that. I just, I don't know what it was. My parents love Athlone. They're very happy there. Uh, a lot of my really close friends in Athlone were very happy. Had very, I just wasn't. I, I didn't, mm. I guess I was born with this kind of the princess and the pea um uh, metaphor I, I i don't know i i i wasn't happy i wanted to get out you know i was an odd little kid um you know who memorized poetry for fun who <laughs> had all these Notions in her head who live like my school report says Lisa lives in a fantasy world. Um, So I I I don't I didn't even know what being a dancer would look like or what Mm. it would uh, be. For me, it was a ticket. And I I was just so excited about the potential of a whole new landscape mm. and leaving Ireland and going beyond that and being able to dance every day. And um, I knew I didn't fit in. So instead of having eight more years of it constantly rammed into you how much you didn't fit in, isn't it better to just transcend that and leave? And go where it's warm. Um, and don't get me wrong, there were elements of of uh, Ireland that I, I still... A door, and at that time it was a very vibrant time in Ireland musically as well. You know, there was the stunning and and the hot house flowers and there was you know this extraordinary band, The Pale, who I I see what you're doing. <laughs> I'm doing what Paul Muldoon does. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're, produ- you're producing the show from the
0: set. Okay, listen, I, I know I know what I'm beat. Here it comes. I haven't heard that in years. The <laughs> Peel and Butterfly, the choice of Lisa Dewan, who's with me in studio. Now, you, you tried to get me away from the ballet there a moment ago talking about it. But it's, it seems to me really strange that, according to you, it was sort of so simple. And yet, when you know, the way you, you got the scholarship and so on. And yet, when you see anything to do with ballet dancers on television and so on, they have to train and work like boxers. Like, they're so physical, so tough. And it doesn't look like anything that comes easily to anybody. And maybe, was this just based on a natural gift that they then wanted to develop? Or could you just do it?
1: I remember the the ballet uh, teacher in, in the way that they could be so cruel. They weren't the things that I had difficulty with. I mean, I had other difficulties, but my um, physical ability um, and my stamina were never a problem. Mm. And I remember uh, this teacher humiliating another girl by saying, well, she can do it. Um, and if she can do it, how come you can't do it? And that kind of punishment, um, that kind of brutal <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, um uh, treatment that we all used to receive now my uh, issues have always been kind of psychological in handling situations I think uh, my physical ability to deliver things um, thank God has never been an issue and we were dancing 10 hours a day every day um, but for me it was just everything that was new just felt like a breath of fresh air you know there was this choreographer there called Josie Carrick She's since died. And this goes back a little bit to uh, Maura Sloan. She wouldn't speak in her dance class. And it was very serious. And I had never been exposed to anything other than ballet. So I didn't do modern or contemporary. And all of a sudden, I'm learning all about Martha Graham and Cunningham and uh, different ways of using my body and where the integrity in a body lay. And And this woman never spoke. She felt that dance was a complete language. And so you would go into her class and she always had a cigarette dangling out of her mouth. And I remember she had the most gorgeous nose, this kind of Roman nose that in anywhere outside of a dance studio might seem unattractive, but it gave her this extraordinary poise in a room like that. And the only time she would break the silence is to say, keep the kettle boiling. And she would, in that moment, create from the ether a dance, a piece of... Choreography that was just mind blowing and stunning and beautiful. And in that moment, created by the end of the class, we'd all be dancing it, and then it would fall away. And that was it. And no one would remember. And that was that. And then she died. And if she only knew how much I think about her and those creations. And I remember she created um, a beautiful piece that I remember a Portuguese dancer, part of our gang this amazing girl who introduced me to Gabriel Garcia Marquez. All I remember is how grateful I am to all these people who introduced me to all these extraordinary things. And one of them was Silvio uh, Rodriguez. And Josie created the most beautiful dance. And even though we were all dancing it, I just remember how uh, stunning um, Sandra's performance was. And these, these are just only alive in, in the stubborn vestiges of my memory. Um, and yet they're so important and they're my guides often when I'm out there on my own on stage under the lights.
0: Now, while all this ballet clearly, clearly stood to you in lots of ways as an actor and in other ways, I'm just curious, and if it's if it's problematic, don't go into it, but why did you not follow it through further?
1: Um. So I guess my body was developing and I was dancing 10 hours a day every day and maybe nutrition wasn't at a height point, who knows, but uh, the cartilage was wearing away and I was in a lot of pain and then I got um, chosen to dance again, another, just one of those accidents that happen. I go to an audition, I got it, um, to dance with the London Lewis Ballet Company and I was dancing with them on tour at the time and I remember my first role with them was the Duchess in Sleeping Beauty. And all of a sudden I'm on the bench and my physiotherapist at the time was the Leeds United physiotherapist, (laughs) Alan Sutton, and he told me that I had no cartilage in either knee and that um, a decision would have to be made. And so there was a conversation with uh, many of the team and it was decided that I wouldn't be able to take my career any further. Wow. And um. I lost, it was like losing my tongue um, for a while. And I rocked up in Galway because I, I couldn't move home. I lived for a little bit in Germany. I ended up <laughs> living in Freiburg in Germany, working in a Bosnian refugee camp. or And then I traveled through um I, I just in the evenings, I looked after a lovely little Down syndrome boy during the day called Jens. And um, I ended up traveling through Holland for a bit and then eventually no money and I had to return home. And I thought I better join my siblings and try and finish school and go the normal path again. But I, I really struggled with that transition. And I fell into one of my... um. Ferocious episodes of depression, and uh I was totally lost. And then someone said to me, walking down Key Street one day, Do you know, you'd be a very good actor, mm. and suggested that I audition for a um, You Theatre. And uh, I did, and I got it. And then I was offered the part of Jack Wheeson, As You Like It. And um, an agent came and spotted me and sent me for three auditions in Dublin and I got all three and next thing I'm an actor.
0: Tell you now that that ballet story is tough and you know unfortunately it's not a it's not an uncommon story uh, and for I'm lots of people. It. I also was going to ask you how do you
1: feel about it now? Oh, I'm so grateful. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, if only I had the gift of hindsight, I wouldn't have gone to those places of despair. But you know, again, like anything, even. Any sort of travel will expand you, and even if it's traveling to the place of despair, you learn from that, um, and uh, and I think your propensity for humanity grows. And um, look, I remember, I remember that time in ballet school with such fondness. I was this kid travelling to the Peace Hall at weekends in Halifax to a second-hand bookstore buying the most pretentious books I could find. Nietzsche's philosophising with a hammer. <laughs> and the Antichrist, and um, and Kundera. And um, as I said, I was introduced to Gabriel Garcia Marquez and and, um, Neruda, and my whole world was expanding um, because of the other foreign students that I was meeting. Um, Katerina from Germany was introducing me to Brecht. And I, I, I just felt so spoilt and enriched. And I remember feeling you know, um, how privileged I was to be able to look out a window that overlooked the moors, sometimes in the snow, and it was so beautiful, and to be dancing to that music and for those studios um, to be filled with so much imagination and hope held in that crepuscular lighting.
0: And we play some music. Now, you mentioned uh, Silvio, Silvio Rodriguez, mm. and this this is uh, El Mayor. Uh, and is this something you would have danced to?
1: Yeah, again, Josie, she was such a visionary she would um, select these artists and in that moment, and not that any of us knew what he was singing about, I think um, would uh, create this little masterpiece that would just disappear at the end of a class Okay El hombre se hizo siempre De todo material, de vías señoriales o barrio marginal, toda época fue pieza de un rompecabezas para subir la cuesta.
0: And that was Silvio Rodriguez, Diaz y Flores, El Mayor, the choice of Lisa Duan, who's with me in, in studio tonight, picking all the music. So, Key Street, somebody said, you should be an actor. You went for a bunch of auditions. Just give me a potted history now of your TV career, because when people talk about you know, you appear in, uh, in these Beckett productions and something. They, they forget that you were in things like *Fair City* and you were in that. That, that *Oliver Twist* was a big one for you as well, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah,
1: Walt Disney film. Yeah,
0: that. What was that like, actually? Because you know, what these these that sort of Walt Disney film is not intended to change the world or anything, and yet it did for you in lots of ways.
1: Yeah, I think every little experience changes the world for you. I mean. I I was picked from Galway, um, from Shakespeare. And at that time, when I was living in Galway, again, a very, very, very magical experience. I might have been living in a flat with black plastic bags over the windows. And I was with about enough money to have a sausage roll and a pizza slice a day and working in various cafes. But I remember and this is this has just come back to me uh, only a few days ago. I was walking down Key Street, and there's Charlie Burns Bookstore, and I come across a book by Patsy Rodenberg, an actor speaks, and I have it at home still, and I bought it for three pounds fifty, and um, I remember taking it home to that little um, bedsit that I had, and um, with the black plastic bags on the windows on um, in Lower Soul Hill, and and would sit there listening to Susan Vega and think, wow, wouldn't it be amazing if I was an actress and hearing about places like the old Vic and the National Theatre and Lawrence Olivia and reading this and it was all coming into my mind. And I thought this woman sounded extraordinary just about the, the relationship between an audience and an actor's voice. And um, that's when I started to dream about the possibility of being an actor. And then... I was doing this one-woman show in the old Vic two years ago, and Matthew Orca said, you know, it's a big old barn of a theater. It's a thousand-seater, you know, and it's just you up there. We'll get someone in to help you with your voice and prepare your voice. And I said, great. In walks Patsy Rosenberg. And she comes straight up to me, and she puts her hands on my womb, and she said, it's all there. We just need to root it. And she's become a major... Um, trap route for me in my life, and um, I can't believe she's this woman whose book I picked up in Charlie Burns is one of my key mentors today.
0: It's a brilliant story. It's, it's, it's even more brilliant how you sidestep the wonderful world of Disney, which I put together. The, I'll, I'll go, go back to. again. We <laughs> no,
1: can always, up. Disney's always there. <laughs>
0: Disney's always there. And then, of course, mm-hmm. what was that? a Bow thing. Big Bow
1: Wow. Big Bow
0: And you were in that as well. I
1: was in that. But the, the, the most I, hilarious see, thing is. I was I was cast out of Galway when I had all these romantic notions of playing Antigone and and the Greeks and Shakespeare. And next thing I get cast in Mystic Knights of Tyr where I was a warrior princess for fifty-six episodes. I've seen the pictures.
0: I haven't seen the picture, but I've seen the
1: pictures. <laughs> and I'm wandering around. I I only took a look at that that um, mountain um Uh, yesterday when I was out in Dorky, the baby sugar loaf, uh, running around the baby sugar loaf in minus two degrees in February in horizontal rain and a leotard and boots covered in clover and cattle excrement shouting about Kells with a plastic crossbow that would later, under CGI, three weeks later, shoot tornadoes. (laughs) And I remember we had this hilarious... um, 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 stunt coordinator called Bronco I hope he's still around Bronco but Bronco is shouting up at you as I'm dangling from a mountain with this rope wrapped around my chest slicing my left breast off I might add as the wind was picking me up and banging me off the mountain and Bronco didn't have a lot of teeth and he would look up at me and say I'm telling you it's perfectly safe I said it's safe I shouted myself for Christ's sake it's safe <laughs> And
0: and, and 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 here's here's and here's the woman who danced with Muriev um, but you know you 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 must have been getting a sort of a sort of proper professional head on you at that point you were working
1: I was working and somehow, it's so funny, I only said this to my best friend Aidan yesterday. We were heading out for a walk in Doki and she looks nothing like me. And she said, how did you manage to get me a job as your photo double? I mean, you couldn't see two people who look totally different. (laughs) But she was my body double, which meant I had a buddy on set and I had a stunt double and a stand in. But we worked so many hours. You needed all of that. I was so young and I was doing... Um, three episodes every 12 days and we're on set from 7am to, you know, well into the um, the late hours. I'm,
0: I'm in the mood to watch Mystic Nights of Cherninog. That was, that's what it was called, wasn't it? Well,
1: look, it? I learned so much. I learned everything um, from it. So uh, sometimes people like to... to, to Poke holes it and dig the piss and they're welcome. No, and but it I'm was not. it was um, and look it's hilarious. I'm not. And, but and, and I remember I was a Happy Meal doll. My doll was sold in McDonald's. I was a Wellington boot. I was a Spaghetti O. I was brought out to America to open up um, a theme park in SeaWorld. World, um, and it was just hilarious. And myself, Vinny, and Lachlan, and all the lads. And we, you know, I was about a forty a day smoker on this kind of kids' show, <laughs> rocking up with a flag hanging out of my mouth the entire time.
0: <laughs> I, I think we should play Suzanne Vega at this point. This uh, this is important to you because this this is what you, Suzanne Vega is. What you were listening to when, when you needed it? There
1: hasn't been a week in my life where Suzanne Vega hasn't featured and I I recently went to see her at the Carlisle Club in New York and I brought my sister and uh, we sat front row and I proceeded to sing every single lyric of hers up Suzanne's nose while the poor woman was trying to concentrate while her crazy super fan was in the front row uh, and my sister was so embarrassed she just kept saying stop it stop it <laughs> Thankfully, I've met Suzanne um, since, and and um, I must admit, I'm still a little starstruck. I find it very difficult to act normal around Suzanne Wig. <laughs>
0: Suzanne Vega there and a song called Cracking the Choice of Lisa Dwan who's with me in studio tonight. Lisa's picking all the tunes and we'll be right back after this break. And this is Mystery Train on RTE Lyric FM until nine o'clock Sunday night the special excursion when we get someone to uh, pick the music and tonight it's the The actress and uh, academic and many other things, Lisa Dewan, who's with me in studio. Uh, We've been through some great tunes, and great stories so far. Uh, We're going to stay in Galway for a moment. Galway seems to have been the place where everything sort of started to turn for you in a good way. I think so.
1: I love Galway. I really do. They used to call it the graveyard of ambition. But for me, it was such a fertile time of daydreaming, sitting in cafes, smoking, dreaming, writing thoughts. Um, and, and maybe manifesting a lot of what's happened since I, I, I used to, I mean, maybe I did looking back, I probably needed a better social life, but uh, I used to commit an awful lot of poetry to memory then. And I remember thinking, God, wouldn't it be amazing if I got to do something like that for a living? Not knowing that that kind of living was actually possible mm. and somehow I've kind of made it possible.
0: What sort of poetry were you memorizing?
1: A lot of Elliot. Yeah. Um, I, I committed all of the wastelands and Prufrock to memory. <laughs> um. I was but just I was for, disc- your, for your own, just for fun, for yeah. crack yeah. For on a Friday night. Yes, you do. Sure, why not? Yeah. Um, but it was
0: just for yourself, and you yeah. probably never got to recite it for anybody or anything. Did not
1: you? at that time, yeah. no. But I just I couldn't like people would buy paintings. Well, why not? You know, take a poem and make your own. Yeah. Um, it's cheaper. Yeah. Uh, and
0: um, and had you any kind of literary training along the way? Because you oh know, no, because I dropped uh, out of school. Yeah. No one was. Um, I don't mean to underestimate you, but T.S. Eliot is not easy. Do you know what I mean? It's not, like lear- it's not like learning off other poems which you can learn rat-a-tat-tat-tat-tat, you know?
1: I had dinner with an old friend on Friday night, and she reminded me that when we were in school, I always had a book behind the maths book, that I was either reading Auden or Austen or, you know, I, I guess I was just always that yeah weird kid. And... Um, and... You know, I just adored poetry and I have um, difficulty reading aloud. So I always feel a lot more confident um, um, committing things to right. memory. And I love having those um, trinkets, those treasures in yeah. my memory box.
0: And it, as you say, it's interesting that, you th- you know, this is something you thought, imagine being able to do this all the time. And then when you kind of came to a new sort of prominence, it was literally... The fact that she, this incredible feat of memorising Beckett and being able to l- deliver it—the most complex parts of Beckett that you could find—you but know? also
1: to take something um, so revered and make it your
0: own—and
1: mm. I think bit by bit, I'd been learning how to do that all along.
0: But even just to to concentrate on the, you know, that to the outsider, what was obviously difficult about the Beckett thing that you were doing was that you could remember it all. Start, And I know it's not about remembering when you perform, actors always say they're not, they're not on stage actively remembering the lines, they're already in them. Well, but it, at the same time, at some point, you have to sit down and learn this thing.
1: And the dance discipline. Look, when I was yeah. doing Not I, I would tie my head to the banisters and I would uh, record myself doing it. And I would train my diaphragm and my body to be able to produce that sound at the speed of thought. And I trained my body. Um, to do that and I trained my memory to do it and I worked hard at it Mm. and I don't know why when actors in Hollywood are revered for gaining a few pounds or losing a few pounds or whatever they, you know, I I mean musicians aren't praised for practicing every day so I don't understand why actors can't work at their craft every day and um, it was no skin off my nose and I found it you know, I'm
0: always working. Well, I've seen, But see, I saw that film of you walking around the kitchen making cups of tea, just constantly repeating the back over and over and over again at, at lightning speed, you know. And then the physical side of being strapped to this thing. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: I think, I, I suppose, if I see a musician playing something extraordinary on a saxophone, I can't do that. I know I can't do that. But when I see somebody speaking, basically speaking, I think, well, that's something we can all do, but not, not like that, not what you've done. Do you know, it's it's on a, it's on a level that's kind of it's incom- incomprehensible to most people.
1: I don't know if that's true. Oh, um, I I I found it was possible because other braver soldiers went before me. Billy Whitelaw broke a psychological barrier by being able to do it in fourteen minutes. It was almost like Roger Bannister's four-minute mile. Yeah. And we've just had the uh, two-hour marathon being broke. You know, we all stand on each other's shoulders in this um field I think and uh, she made it possible and also more than anything else gave me the permission to make it my own and I think uh, to go back to your point about memorization the only way memory is possible by making by personalizing it and making it your own and taking a purchase in it I mean Fiona Shaw uh, inspired me with the wastelands that it could all come from a woman's body mm. And um, and she opened up that door of possibility. As I said, these extraordinary women that I was so lucky to be exposed to didn't let geography or chewing gummed beer ruined floors get in the way of the Royal Ballet choreography happening on an athlone stage. You know, I, 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 I have been extremely lucky to have these women, these trailblazers, these visionaries um, uh, open my eyes for me.
0: I want to talk about Billy Whitelaw specifically, but let's play one of the tracks from the Galway period. We're getting out of step here, but from back in Galway, Geoffrey Oryima, who's an artist who was on the Real World Record label, when we started listening to this thing called world music, yeah. as it was then uh, <laughs> being, being labelled and marketed.
1: Well, Galway um, was just full of dreadlocks and dogs on strings and uh, whale's teeth and people doing jembies. And... <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's called Macambo it's from uh, Jeffrey Orima from an album which I remember coming out on the on the real world label called uh, Exile that brings me back I used to play it on the radio years ago wow. beautiful song isn't it yeah so that was you that was and Galway now let's talk about Billy Whitelaw um, you know ne- obviously you never got to work with Beckett but the connection with Billy Whitelaw is very important in terms of that lineage isn't it because she she was his actor actress well,
1: she one was of his the, muse yeah yeah very
0: important to him. And and then tell me how you met her and what, what she would have said to you.
1: So I moved to London when I was about 21 or something or 22. I couldn't be um, taken seriously as a, an actor here on stage. Why not? And I have no idea and there's no point going back um thinking no. about that but i i could never get an audition in the gate of the abbey or anything and i still despite you know the tv and stuff and maybe i was a bit pretentious um and not grateful enough but i had all these romantic notions about um theater and and the greeks and um and i was part of that whole kind of um Beckett gathering they had here Um, I was doing a TV series with Stephen Brennan who's a great Beckett actor and I'll never forget we were on our way um, out to set and the car stopped at Bagot Street Bridge and he describes in detail, um, in Not I, this one woman play, how a disembodied mouth is hovering eight foot above the stage, and even though the actor's head is locked into something rigid, that in an entirely blackened-out auditorium that the mouth appears to roam or osculate throughout the theatre. And even though I still to this day have never seen a version of Not I on stage, all I have is the image that Stephen Brennan painted in my imagination in 2000 on Bagot Street Bridge. And I was around during the time that they were committing all of Beckett's work to um, film Mm. as part of this project. And that became my bar and my benchmark when I um, thought about theatre. And I couldn't get a purchase in for whatever reasons, but I moved to London then. And um, I still to this day don't know if it was a mistake, um, but somebody sent me the script, if not I, with a time and audition for the next day. And my first impulse when I read the script was, oh, Jesus, Beckett, I'm going to have to call my my intelligent brother to help um, unpack um, this with a big, giant mental pickaxe for me. And um, I couldn't reach him. And so uh, with the pressure mounting for the audition the next day, I just sat down alone and read, and there I was. It was my mind splayed open on a page. I saw waves of corrections and interruptions. I heard the nuns, no sooner buttoned up his britches, the parochial acerbic asides at home, um, and my mother's tender mercies and God is love. And I heard home and it seemed to be written with a kind of uh, rhythm that was propelling me along to speak it quite fast. Mm. There was three dots, then two dots, then three dots and a dot dash and... And um, I could see how it wasn't just a neat stream of consciousness reminiscent of Joyce yeah. or Elliot, that this was more chaotic than that. It was more of a cacophony. It was more um, pressured. And, um, and I got the part the next day. And the director's only note was Becca wanted this spoken at the speed of thought because he wanted it to play on the nerves of the audience and not the intellect. Right. And I remember I would practice and rehearse and um, and try to avoid any um, mention of the word Billy Whitelaw, who I knew was synonymous with this role. But I knew that if I let her shadow into my... Work. I would be too intimidated, or worse, I would try and copy what she was mm. doing, and therefore wouldn't find my own access point. And the other instinct, um, and I'm I'm getting a little bit better to at listening at my uh, listening to my instincts, but my instinct then was that this had to be my own. Mm. Um, and how can
0: you do that with Beckett when he's? He famously leaves very clear instructions as to how something has to be done.
1: Oh, there's loads of scope within his seemingly rigid lines. There's plenty of scope to dance his language. Mm. And the only way to do it is to make it your own because otherwise you're going to be sentimental. And Beckett has shown me time and time again that sentimentality is the language of gangsters. (laughs) And uh, there's only, uh, you know, there's only one way of performing Beckett and that's ripping your skin off. Um, and you do it disciplined within his lean lines and you don't allow space for excess or force. You know, it, it, it has to be contained. And that ability of having your body strapped to um, this board that I stand in my head in a head harness Means that your imagination is utterly liberated. You can leave your body, and you can leave your relationship with your own body, and the politics of your body, and other people's aspersions on your body. And as a as a young woman, to be liberated from your body, I can tell you, there's nothing as gorgeous as that feeling. I would say that Beckett introduced me to myself, um, and I remember um, training, uh, myself in my memory. Putting on a blindfold and my director would take me out to a park and I would feel the grass just to have some sort of sensory connections to to, uh, bolster my memory in this piece because you're just alone and it's written in such a tricksy, fragmented, repetitive way that you need (laughs) something so that time when it gets to... Um, or that time she cried the one time she could remember since she was a baby must have cried as a baby perhaps not not central to life just the birth cry to get her that I would um, reach for the grass and Croker's Acres, um, um, home home, a little mound in Croker's Acres that I would I would reach for the grass and various different little um, things I'm, like that. It's
0: st- it's still within you, is it? It's still there. Oh, completely. Yeah.
1: And um, uh, I remember one time I did it and I did a whole run of the monologue and I took off my. Uh, I mask and I had uh, collected an audience of park bench drunks who stood there gripping their cans of cider and we just looked at each other in complete acknowledgement and they were using that cider to quieten that internal voice and there was just this look of complete recognition. Beckett would
0: have loved that, wouldn't he? He
1: would, and you realise that he did want it to bypass the intellect because there is something that's communicated on a completely other level. And Beckett touched on that in theatre. He created a whole new space in theatre. And um, that was a space that was as close to poetry and dance as I had ever known. It wasn't rigid in its narrative, as Beckett says in text for nothing, no need of a story. Mm. Life alone is enough. And that's what I adored about Beckett is that we are liberated from stories about ourselves and these manipulative, sentimental narratives that keep us in check. They're used so cleverly by the Greeks and onwards to control the logos and ideas of ourselves. And Beckett blows all of that up and offers us the most unrelenting, at times of a frightening look at ourselves, but it's stark and brilliant and vast. And I remember... A friend of mine said to me you know Beckett's a very cruel writer it might be okay for him to describe the universe in that way but the rest of us need our delusions mm. and in many ways she's right it's hard to eyeball our own loneliness our own impending death that we're all just a breath away from
0: and what, um, did, what, what did you feel like physically afterwards spent yeah exhausted
1: yeah, absolutely spent.
0: Fit for nothing? I mean, could you could you walk home? I mean, were you in bits?
1: No, I was always, you know, one of the great things, uh, and I would advise, and I could have said riots here in the theatre world, but I would advise more actors to produce their own work. You'd realise how liberating it actually is. Um, when you have to keep one eye on box office and one eye on marketing and one eye on your crew, and even though maybe I bit off more than I could chew, who knows, it means you don't have the luxury of going mad. Mm. I don't have a safety net to allow myself go uh, crazy. So I think I push my body uh, often at times quite severely, but I'm not crazy. I've no interest in money. Uh but I'm not interested in being a star. I'm interested in the thing being the best possible thing I can make it. And in my case, having been spoiled rotten in the most expansive, spoiling, luxurious way in you know, in many respects, it was it was intellectually spoiling and luxurious. Um, Beckett's landscape constantly fertile anytime you dig in Beckett's work you'll always find something. Unf- you'll always find a nod back to Dante or Virgil or the Bible <laughs> you know but there's always something underneath to stand on and that's a tremendous priv-
0: privilege. Just before we leave that I asked you about b- Billy Whitelaw Oh yeah and I took when, you of course. No no not, not that um, I just want to. when you encountered Billy Whitelaw what, oh, what, what happened then?
1: Oh, it was amazing. So I managed to get through the first performance without meeting her. And then Edward Beckett came along to my first performance as, Jesus, you should really meet Billy now that you've found your own way. And he introduced us. And we did this um, documentary together um, for The Verb. And um, uh, turns out she just lived 100 yards from my house all the time. I didn't know. while well, I was tying my head into the banister. She was quite a recluse at this stage um, living on Parliament Hill and we greeted each other like two long-lost war veterans. She'd never met anyone who played, not I, Mm. and neither had I. And um, we shared all of our stories from the trench. um, And how did you swallow and did you feel like a pelican? Yeah. (laughs) And she she remembered every word of it. And um, a year after we met, She called me up out of the blue and she said, can you come round, please? I want to give you his notes. I have to give you his notes. And I thought she might take out an old rehearsal manuscript with his scrolly writing on it that we've all become familiar with. And I didn't really know what had me in her kitchen that afternoon. But apart from tremendous respect for her and their relationship. And when I came in, she said, sit down. And I did. And she said, begin. And I said, what? And she said, I know you haven't forgotten it. And I did. Out into this world, this world, time, little thing before, it's time, and I got for what? And she was sat opposite her kitchen table conducting me. Ta-ta-ta-ta, ta-ta-ta-ta. But the brain, but the brain, when there's alliteration, um, punch the bees. And... Um, and i realized that's what beckett had done to her across her kitchen table and she unlocked lots of technical aids she used but not once did she ever try and force me force feed me a beckettian style of acting she was very conscious that she didn't want to put that on me she wanted to give me the keys to access my own beckett And she kept saying, you know, I was putting a kind of fake monotone on it because that's how I thought Becca was supposed to be spoken. And she said, what are you doing? Now bring all that in. It has to come from you. And I realized then that in the years that followed, it was never about the speed. It was the sound and the sense of our edge that he was after. He wanted to hear what our edge sounded like.
0: Thinking ahead now to Nose Knife, which you did in the Abbey. Saw you there, and it was a big event, you know. <laughs> um, but were you were you seriously? You know, do you seriously still have that sense that you know who does she think she is putting on Beckett plays and stuff? You know what you were saying. You
1: know, there's a oh, kind even of a, if I'm not thinking it, someone would be very quick to remind me.
0: Yeah, but there's always somebody like that.
1: There is, but I, there's a lot of them. And when you're when you're, um, what I love about Beckett is that he's put the mind on stage. Mm-hmm and the the chorus the committee of critics that live in our heads but um i you know i've had to in the past i would have drunk my way through it and um I I don't resort to those antics anymore. You couldn't um, possibly, dr- you know. If dr- I used to. My and first and time uh, when I was performing, not I. I was having a, a few brandies backstage. What well, I mean, does that not, you know? I you wasn't. Know. I I I had to. But, um, but can you perform? Can no, you, can, you can't. You can't. You, can't. And, you know. Um. Uh, I I quit drinking very long time ago now. Um, But it does mean that you just have to kind of find other ways of transcending those voices. And one of those is this fabulous stage manager I've worked with many, many times for years. Her name is Yvonne. Um, But she's a big Nick Cave fan. And she has um, a tattoo of his face on her leg. And next thing, an usher... On opening night. It's so funny because I was listening to this. Hang on now. I was listening to this album to in order to gain strength for getting up on stage. I would listen to it running on the heath and just that refrain, you know, regardless about how I'm feeling, this is what she's born to do. This is who she is and what she does. This is just what I do and I have to do it regardless how I'm feeling about it. But this usher came up and said, (gasps) Nick Cave's in the audience. And next thing Siobhan hit the floor. It was the first time I'd ever seen Siobhan cave. <laughs> and I said to her, Get up! Get up now! And start roaring at her. And um, afterwards I said to her, Siobhan, we make work that Nick Cave comes to.
0: Down and inside out and like a funnel web, like a black fly on the Bad Skinny white Rings high in and black oily gash, crawling backwards across the, and the bad seeds and rings of Saturn. Lisa I think I read somewhere. Maybe it was that film I saw that you used to listen to Nick Cave before performances. One performance in particular, is that
1: This was the one?
0: Yeah. And that was the song, was it? Yeah. Well wow. This
1: was the song. Wow. And um, then he turned out to be in the audience. Uh, Summoned. No pressure. Mm. That
0: that's thing, you know, we thinking about Nick Cave, you know, who for so long his whole demeanour was of, you know, darkness, you know. And then real darkness really visited him, you know. Do you know what I mean? It became kinda real. And
1: what's just extraordinary about him is that he just leant into that yeah. and transformed transformed those wounds. Into these extraordinary offerings, and um, and that's the kind of principle I try to follow.
0: Well, you've mentioned the black dog a couple of times tonight, <laughs> yeah. And and uh, you know, how does that affect the work? Do you know what I mean? Does it does, it, does the work help, or does it make the work impossible? Do you know?
1: Um, it depends on the circumstances. Mm. I've always found. Um, and I'm very lucky, you know. Uh I have a colossal propensity for joy and mm. we kinda began with that. And um and it's I, I must try and remember when I'm in the jowls of Black Dog, um, how close that propensity is and not to um quit before yeah. that dawn. And um i'm also extremely fortunate uh i have a, an extraordinary amount of friends around me um uh just that i my life has has led me into places and into people that my work mightn't be for everybody but it touches
0: no.
1: other other people and that's why people like column have have given up a year of their lives and written a play for me and i'm now working with margaret atwood um what do you do with margaret atwood she's she rang me up and she said why are you doing antigone and i said well you know why i'm doing antigone it's one woman um narrative taking on the patriarchy yeah 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 but why aren't you doing medea you should be doing medea <laughs> I said, why? And she said, Well think about it. And I said, well, I'm thinking about it. And uh I was drawing a blank and she said, You've got that funny little accent and everyone hates you. You're perfect. <laughs> and so I said, Well if they can write me one then. You, so well, we've begun working on a one woman Medea that is being directed by Robert LePage. Wow.
0: Um, Would you come on next week and pretend to be Margaret <laughs> <laughs>
1: That'd be a good show. Um. <laughs> We'd
0: get away with it. But, you know, all, um, all I'm wondering is, in terms of the black dog, does it mean that do you, in those circumstances, need to throw yourself into the work or are you just not fit to work? You don't want to work. You don't want to know about work.
1: Um No, I, I always work. I, mm. I, I, it's never got to a stage, thank God, where, um, apart from maybe when I was drinking and I was no use to anybody, um, but uh, to accept that I have uh, tumultuous weather mm. as kind of part of my uh, personality, my psyche. Because um, I wish
0: people could have seen you at the top of the programme when Maria McCabe was on. I mean, you were dancing
1: full on. And I will be again were you to stick it on. You know, I, and I, I, I do know that that propensity is always there. And you just have to remind yourself in moments when you're in the jowls that well, um, that is available to me also, that the two can coexist. In
0: the context of the <laughs> next song that you have chosen, though, oh. is it a good idea? Is it a good idea to go into music which is dark? Or should you avoid music that is dark? I mean, we're drawn to Nick cave songs. We're drawn to uh, what's coming up next. And
1: I'm drawn to darkness. Yeah. And I find a lot of solace and truth in that. I I, I think if I have any kind of barometer in life, it's truth. And I try um, and listen to the timbre of it in people's voices or in their work or in the reminences that they've left behind like Beckett and I hate being dictated to I hate a polemic and I you know I've worked in PR I, I know the shtick and again I'm not really interested in people's stories I'm interested in their Souls, and I find what's extraordinary about somebody like Nick Cave or Beckett is that they have managed to transform those wounds and give them uh, um, to us as offerings. And I, in turn, um, have learned how to make my wounds work. and in many respects it's really helped me make sense of my life oh that's why that happened oh look i can give it a job i can cast it as you know this sentence in this um particular monologue or i can think about it at this moment while it rips my skin off and close it up again and i've been able to uh, wrap my own wounds around uh, my work And make them into richer, more textured things.
0: Well, you. Brown. and there's Bonnie Prince Billy I see a darkness the choice of Lisa Duane who's uh, who's with me in studio Lisa um, the idea of collaborating with other people and <laughs> you know well I'm, leading up, I'm leading up to a happy colla- a happy collaboration with Thomas I don't know what you're laughing at a happy collaboration with Thomas Bartlett here you know oh, yeah. um, from another discipline in one way you know well in obvious ways a musician but um, how does something like that? come about. How do you guys find each other?
1: Actually, this is a hilarious story. If uh, you Leonard. do it, do it in the
0: voice of Margaret Atwood. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, go
1: Irla or Leonard thought it'd be a great idea to try and set uh, Thomas Bartlett and I up on a date. And on a for, date date. He, Yeah, yeah. And for anyone who knows, either of us, knows that that's just the worst idea uh, on earth. And um, Um, Anyway, we found ourselves in a restaurant together and it was just so inappropriate on a whole range of levels. I think Thomas was about three bottles in and... (laughs) We hadn't even had a starter and I don't think we even bothered ordering a main course. And we said, well, thanks a million. Lovely to meet you. And then uh, he's a gentleman, so he gets me into a taxi. I said, do you need a lift? And he said, no, no, I'll get the subway. And then I actually see him coming back out of the subway (laughs) to go back (laughs) into the restaurant. (laughs) And uh, I was so um, embarrassed. Um, Anyway... I come to New York that story, a few you know? months later uh, with my Beckett's and I get this ecstatic uh, phone call from him. And could I please come for dinner? Could he take me for dinner? Could I meet his mom? And invited me up to, um, they have this Sunday dinner now, which I've become part of the um, the Bartlett family, that EM uh, invited me to and uh, it's just the most extraordinary thing you could have anyone from mandy Patinkin there to nico muli to you know it's it's uh it's a bizarre gathering of new york orphans and while we're there he said we should work on something together And I said, well, actually, I'm I'm starting to work on text for nothing and I need to record it. And Beckett writes like music. And in fact, I showed him the very first draft of Footfalls, which is exactly like a stave of music. And I said, I am trying to work out the various pitches of voices on this score, which, um, you know, is just a prose piece that I was transforming um, into a score for the stage. And I didn't know whether to do recorded voice and psalms. It was a lot of work. So we collaborated on text for nothing. And we would sit in a studio together. And um, we wouldn't speak. Um, And he had his back to me. And I've shared this with many people like Julia Stone and Annie Clark or Annie St. Vincent. Um, And they all have the same experience. There's an extraordinary intelligence gift whatever you call it, of Thomas Bartlett's, that he's able to sit in your mind and almost preempt decisions you're about to make. Not that one, that one. And I've never kind of shared that space, that mental space with somebody else so intimately as I have with that man and even though you know we're so different in so many ways when you sit in a studio with somebody like him it it is it is a phenomenal experience he is so sensitive and um, you really share one of the loneliest places on earth with somebody else, and they just sit there, hovering like a kind of diffident guest, but uh, deeply appreciative and sensitive, and the impact is very powerful. And I kept saying to him, "You know, um, God, Thomas, you're 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 great." And he said, "Yeah." Some people say you're tricky. He said, "I find you amazing to work with." And I said, "Well, you've got a lot of help." <laughs> <laughs> what, are we, what are we going to hear? But while we're working together, he created this piece and you would sit in Thomas's studio till about three in the morning. And I think the refrain is something probably deep at the heart of maybe what drives us.
0: Now, nobody has heard this and Thomas, yeah. s- Thomas has given us the all clear to play it. So this is called In the End. Gorgeous piece. And thanks to to Thomas for letting us play that because nobody's heard that before, Lisa. And thanks for for the introduction on that one. Um, Before you go, uh, this play, which is opening on Thursday, Lisa, Mm -hmm. written for you by Colin Tobin. Um, What's it called? What's it based on?
1: So it's called Pale Sister, it's a retelling of the Antigone myth told from the point of view of Ismene. It comes out of a project. Um, Colm came to me and um, when he saw me in Nose Knife and said, I'd like to write you a play. I said, I need an Antigone. This was me recovering from the heat of 2016 and issues around narrative and wondering, what am I going to do? How do I respond to this? Um, I'm not much of a joiner, so being part of the hashtag Movement wasn't really me. Um, I guess I don't trust any kind of movements. But I was very interested in wondering could we go any deeper, and I really started to think about narratives that can receive things like nasty woman or tricky woman or you know that. Do you really think you're a that you no? Re- well, you well I'm you, just I'm just very interested how. They work and they do work. But how um, no, how how you, these you narratives we, we constrict us. And I was thinking about that in the world of misogyny um, when I went to hear Brian um, Stevenson talk uh, of the Equal Justice Initiative in America who set up a museum on lynching and uh, he spoke about America will never be able to um, pull itself out of the gels of racism until she confronts her narratives and I thought about that in terms of misogyny and he was saying that the the South may have, or the North may have won the war but the South won the narrative and I was thinking about narratives and how um, having been liberated from narratives for so long in Beckett's work that when I go back to play Pinter's whore and Virtuous, um wife when I play the shrill girlfriend who goes from note to uh um, crazy in a mere nanosecond with the greatest economy of words in in uh, Conor McPherson's Shining City you know that these caricatures of women that were constantly being asked to perpetuate and keep alive and resurrect that just don't reflect anything I know um I thought, let's go back and examine this. And to go back to that, you go back to the Greeks and the early roots. And, you know, the Greeks were super smart. They were building a democracy. And at the same time, they were controlling the logos. All citizens were forced to go. They were paid to go to the theater. And I say, citizens, I'm only talking about the men. And through these narratives, Mm. these pulpits, they learned how to deal with an upstart woman, a shrill Young upstart woman, Mm. the Greta Thunbergs, the Nancy Pelosi's, the Hillary Clinton's, you know, and and they're all crazy. It's funny, isn't it? And um, and then they learn how to deal with the immigrant mother in Medea Mm. um, or that untrustworthy beauty in Helen of Troy or intelligence in Medusa just cut off her head. So I wanted to go back and put some flesh on these characters, making it more difficult for the next generation. I thought about my, you know, if I'm going to contribute anything to theatre. And this is probably just a complete drop in the ocean. To imagine it'll be any bigger than this is ridiculous and probably very vain of me. But I have to try. And um, I just wanted my nieces to be able to see a different... Antigone and every single version I've read and we studied and worked at this in Columbia, Column and I, we examined and re-examined every Antigone that's been left from Tom Poland to um, Antigonic by Anne Carson, by Brecht to Ennui, to Heaney. And Rudolf Steiner says, you know, Antigonies are being imagined and reimagined for hundreds of year, years with the same implicit message. Antigone, lie down. Mm. and I don't want that to happen I don't that want opens, to lie down
0: that opens Thursday night Thursday night at the gate
1: mm.
0: and, and I hope that goes really well for you yeah, there's you know, some, There's so much more to talk about we never even got into the whole academic side of your life many places are you a professor now Professor, what, where? I mean, it's all over the place, isn't it?
1: I don't know. You don't even a, know Travelling circus. Yeah. I, I teach a lot in America. And Princeton. Princeton and Columbia. And uh, this year I'm at MIT in Georgetown. And um, yeah, I've been lucky. I
0: tell you. Listen, I'm so grateful for, you for coming in, Lisa. I know you're busy. And uh, I hope it goes all well on Thursday night and for the run. Uh, thanks to Anya Faye, my uh, producer. Um, and Lisa, thanks a million for coming and picking all these changes. Real pleasure. Thank you so
1: much for having me on this train.
0: Your last track, Sinead.
1: Yeah. Well, when Colum came to see me uh, perform in Washington, and he sent me the first draft he'd written of this pale sister, the first question I had for him was, Colum, what do you think about Antigone? He went, Oh, oh. Well, I suppose she's a bit like Sinead O'Connor.
0: Lisa, thanks a million. Listening to a podcast of Mystery Train with John Kelly. Mystery Train hits the rails every Sunday to Thursday at 7pm on 96 to 99 RTE Lyric FM.